Welcome back to the Brown Taboo Project. Listen, we are excited as hell to have you for this episode. It is going to be dope AF, as the youth say. <laughs> as the- I am Shreya in New York. <laughs> I'm Tanya in the DC area. This is Sri coming at you from Denver, and we're so excited today to have Dr. Nisha Gupta on with us. Um, So Dr. Nisha Gupta is trained as a clinical psychologist and liberation psychologist. She is an assistant professor at the University of West Georgia, and she's been doing some awesome arts-based research inquiries as it relates to reclaiming erotic power among women from the South Asian diaspora. So Desi Eros, we've been talking a lot about decolonizing sexuality and talking about erotic power. So we're so excited to have you on today. Thanks, Nisha, for joining us. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be in dialogue with you guys. We are kindred spirits, obviously, with this topic. And so it's just (laughs) going to be a pretty fruitful and exciting conversation, I'm sure. Totally. I'm stoked. Um, Okay. So first of all, what is liberation psychology? This sounds so sexy. The world wants to know. (laughs) Yes. Tell us more, Nisha. Um, liberation psychology, I guess I came across it during my doctoral studies in clinical psychology, where a lot of the training that I was receiving, um, as a psychotherapist was about, you know, people's psychological suffering being Mm -hmm. focused on them individually or what's happening, um, in their psyche or in their childhood, et cetera, with their thought processes. And that wasn't really working for me because a lot of the suffering that I was experiencing or seeing around me was coming um, straight up from social injustice and being marginalized and living in a society. 10,000%. Yeah, that traumatizes people, frankly. And so that's where I kind of came across liberation psychology um, coming from liberation theology. But a lot of it came from an El Salvadoran social psychologist mm-hmm, named mm-hmm. Ignacio Martin Barreau, mm-hmm. um, who just talked about how living in um, situations of state violence uh, induces PTSD symptomology yeah, in the people. Totally. And so my work focused on adapting that to queer people. And this was particularly around when India recriminalized homosexuality. Mm, okay, word. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So my dissertation project at the time was about how um, being in the closet can cause PS- PTSD symptomology. So that yeah. is kind of like a huh. work of liberation psychology. And a lot of what lib psychologists do is um, pursue research, do therapy, educate in a way that really just directly tries to transform social injustice. Sweet. Yeah. Um, I had it a comes to the right place. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, Nisha, I had a question for you. So um, I work in the you know world of HIV and trauma informed care is like all the rage these days, and like Totes, everybody yeah. and their mother is talking about it, whether they. No, you know, it's like the sexy word of the times. And right? they, they so, say it, but are you actually doing it? But I'm it? like, are you like... actually talking? You know, like it, yeah. it's like the thing that like it's everywhere. So I was just curious, like, because, you know, we are talking about, um, you know, uh, oppression and, you know, but potentially being a minority and the from what I know of trauma-informed care, I'm no, by no means an expert. It does sound like it has some overlap. So I was just curious if if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I guess I, I 
I have a pretty broad definition of trauma, um, which mm-hmm. is kind of anything that is a experience of distress that overwhelms our capacity to make meaning of it. And so then I just imagine trauma to be everywhere. And so now as an educator, right, I'm a professor. I just assume that my students are going to carry a lot of trauma about the things I'm talking about in ways I don't even imagine. And mm-hmm. so I kind of go into everything stating that, you know, making that known, normalizing that, and then seeing the people that I'm doing work with, whether that's as a professor, as a clinician, as a researcher, Mm -hmm. as collaborators, where there is that like non-hierarchical process of being able to disclose and have grounding techniques and Mm -hmm. uh, informed consent and all those kinds of things around and also understand that everything should be in the process of healing and empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At all times. (laughs) Yeah. that, That should be the point of it is not to just you know, research trauma and leave people in trauma, but to find the healing and the empowerment when looking at trauma. Yeah. To get kind of sure that make meaning of it. It sounds like is even a big part of it, right? Like even recognizing that that's the kind of response you're having to something to be able to do something about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about this, they see Eros project, like just both professionally and personally kind of what you've been up to or your background and, and how that led to where you're at right now. Yeah, so I'll talk about um, towards the end of my doctoral studies, I was focusing mostly on doing therapy with queer people of color, which Sri, I think that you're focused on as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, But in my clinical internship year, I actually got to work with more South Asian uh, college students than ever before, who were both uh, South Asian American, but also coming as immigrants. Where were you at? I'm curious. I was at American University's College Counseling Center in D.C. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize you had such a big South Asian population. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, it does compare to Pittsburgh where I was... (laughs) I was doing the doctoral <laughs> studies, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so during that work, you know, I, th- I think themes of um, sexual and gender-based trauma kept mm-hmm. coming up mm-hmm. in therapy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there'd be um, work around healing from just assault or violence, but also work around shame when trying to be mm-hmm. um, intimate with one's partner. Totally. Work around um, realizing someone's, attracted to only women, but their uh, parents have arranged a marriage for them. Um, you know, to a, people, man. to a man with pe- <laughs> people. Yeah. With people like much younger than me too, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. I just how this keeps going, but, but I think what I noticed during that therapy, um, so much of my work had focused on trauma up till that point, but what I was experiencing in the room with my clients was so much power. Like I was just amazed Fuck yeah. at the power that was radiating from them for coming to therapy, mm-hmm. for trying to resist um, the forces that had been put on them and searching for liberation. And so this project, which is all about reclaiming erotic power, really is inspired by that collaborative work um, with the South Asian women that were so powerful that I was doing therapy with. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like, I mean, we've all talked about on this podcast before our own experiences with therapy and Mm -hmm. talking about like what that has been like for all of us. And it's, it's exciting to hear that. I mean, I feel like there's this, obviously you usually go to therapy because you're like, something is off, something's a little wrong. Right. And there's something I'm trying to address, but like, I don't know, it's nice to, to flip it and, and think about what is the power and the resilience and the healing that emanates from people mm-hmm. and not just what the pathology or what the, you know, stigma and shame and all that shit is that people are bringing into the room. Yeah. And I think we've also, you know, we've talked about like, you know, 
your therapist and how you, it, it takes time to like find the right person. And so yeah. like, and I know I have experienced this where like, I am talking about, you know, my particular issues and, you know, a lot of that's like cultural. Right. And like the first therapist I had was like, you can just continue exactly what you're doing. Continue hiding stuff from your mother because wait, that's, what? that protects you. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, that's like, that's what I, I, I need to find a strategy in which I can safely start sharing more of Be my, my life real self. Yeah. And stop like having a dual life because it's killing my mental health. Right. Snaps to that. Um, and then, so I was like, okay, this is not the right fit. This person you know, is a person of color, but does not understand like the actual, I guess, like, you know, trauma may not be the right word, but like what I am facing, right? Like mm-hmm. the issue that I have been facing for a long time now. Um, so I think it's it's very interesting that, you know, uh, you know, uh, we're flipping the script here. We're talking about the power of therapy, but then it's also like, you also have to sometimes find that right person who can empower you to continue on that journey that you've already started for yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. And something that really is standing out as you're talking is also like being aware of the power within yourself to know what you need. Like, first of all, how, you know, the power that it takes for us to go to therapy um, and overcome that stigma and get us into the room. And then that like light inside of us that knows what we need, Mm. what kind of um, partner we need as a therapist and and the direction and you kind of like trusting ourselves. And I think that's actually a lot of what my research about um, erotic power with South Asian women was pointing to is that that power that just is exists in there and needs to be mirrored in a way. Yeah. I have a question mainly mm-hmm. because I don't come from like a health background or anything remotely close to <laughs> psychology. So maybe this sounds dumb, but like hearing you talk, um, I feel like growing up and just like the cultural context, I know a lot of people feel like with trauma, it's like getting assaulted or like being sold into, you know, child or not being sold, but like being married off as a child, something Mm -hmm. like that. Right. That's like trauma. Anything short of that is like, you're fine. (laughs) Pish posh. It's very black and white. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like an acute thing that happened to you. Yeah, exactly. Like it has to be a major thing, Mm -hmm. but what it actually sounds like is that like, repression itself Mm. is a kind of trauma. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting to to define trauma here. Um, I'm also starting to look at things like historical trauma, Mm -hmm. intergenerational Mm -hmm. trauma. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The trauma that gets passed down to us through generations of being colonized and what Mm -hmm. that did to our sexuality as a people. Um, you know, whatever our ancestors went through as um, women uh, and how a lot of that creates the same PTSD symptoms Mm -hmm. um, across the generations and symptoms like hypervigilance, like dissociation, um, like numbing, like, you know, avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes even flashbacks for people that have looked into uh, historical trauma and intergenerational trauma. And so, yes, like the way that I'm seeing it is, um, people who have experienced direct experiences of assault, but also the other types of abuses that, um, that are indicative of, of intergenerational trauma, like, uh, 
um, verbal abuse, like Mm -hmm. slut shaming, like homophobia Mm -hmm. as a trauma in and Mm -hmm. of itself. Totally. Mm-hmm. Dang, huh? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, we know we 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 had um last season an entire se- uh, not season an entire episode on like beauty standards, like fuck your beauty standards, right? And mm-hmm. like just like exactly what we talked about from being colonized, all these Eurocentric beauty standards where you have to be, you know, light skinned and thin, and you know, even though the majority of of people from where we're from don't actually look like that. Yeah, and, at all. You know, and yeah. and body types vary, as we know, across every single um, person who lives in this world, right? And like, yeah. but you're expected to conform to certain things. And then there's this weird thing of you're not supposed to be sexual, right? <laughs> but then you get married and you're supposed to be sexual because you're supposed to produce children, right? So in that in-between time on your wedding night, you're supposed to learn everything there is about sex and also like have sex and also then start producing babies because yeah. there's no other function to sex besides having children and what that does to us as human beings. Yeah. Right. right. But also, but also like the ways that we actually can't have sex because of Mm -hmm. all the messages telling us sex was bad and then the um, flip switches and all of a sudden we're supposed to, but I think that idea of like dissociation coming up, the Mm -hmm. body freezing, Mm -hmm. um, all of that, the physical, uh, challenges with even having sex because of the psychological messages that have been put in us. Totally. So that's a lot of kind of what I um, have been interested to explore and, and dismantle um, through knowledge being power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's interesting because you, you kind of hear this rhetoric often of people being like, oh, that's my Catholic guilt, right? Of like, I was raised in Christianity, I was raised in Catholicism, and I'm kind of trying to leave that behind, but it's still baked in around like shame around sexuality, or even if I'm like, okay, I don't think of this as a sin necessarily, but it's kind of like baked in. And and we've actually talked about and done some workshops before on like shame versus guilt and how that can be related to coming a little bit more from like collectivist or communitarian values, like our cultures tend to be as more of this um, shame-based way of keeping people in versus like um, a lot of Western religions kind of coming more from this guilt-based place. But I don't know, I've always had this thing when I hear someone say that of like the Catholic guilt, and we don't necessarily have like a catchy phrase to describe our cultural you know, pass down intergenerational traumas and shame and stigma around those issues. But I, it, it just like, it, there's this reciprocal piece to it that it's like, obviously all of all cultures fuck people up in their own specific ways, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, what, what is our version of that? Or how, how does that get conceptualized? Or, you know, maybe people just don't really even talk about it. Well, that was, because that's, ex- that I'm so glad that you m- named that because I felt that <laughs> same way. And then I took um, upon this research study and a lot of my own psyche begun to become decolonized through mm. doing this work because what I <gasps> tell realized, us how Nisha, tell us how. I, well, okay. So I, I think this is a, a, a religious thing as well. Mm-hmm. And I identify as Hindu and through my research, I realized that a lot of that slut shaming was coming from the British mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Christian, mm-hmm. the Christian Protestant values that weren't mm-hmm. there um, in Hinduism with yeah. Hinduism. And you see this painting behind me, it's Sh- uh, Shiva and Kali delighting and in erotic power nice, um nice. and they're beheaded you know Kali's beheading a colonizer Ooh, <laughs> yes. yes and the colonizer 
yeah, the colonizer is interfering with the ability to enjoy desire, pleasure, and erotic love, which is so mm. inherent to Hinduism. Um, and so it's interesting to see how when we talk about historical trauma or the trauma coming from colonization as it results um, in, in sexual shame, yeah. uh, the, the ways we've been stripped of our own connection at, at, um, as Hindus with that. And I, I'm saying that with Hindus because I also started to explore it, right, with Buddhism is kind of a similar story. Um, mm-hmm. But even with Islam, what mm-hmm. I was uh, started, you know, see this painting here, which is um, directly inspired by an Indian Muslim woman getting, you know, her, her, her stories about falling in love and falling in sin at the same time mm-hmm. as she enjoys erotic pleasure with her lover, who she deeply loves, um, that's premarital. And what I also realized with, you know, as she's talking is, is Sufism. She kind of pointed me into totally. the direction of, yeah. of Sufis um, dismantling of this intellectual concept mm-hmm. of sin and really paving like ethics to be about love um, and and not really saying much about things like sexual sin. And so there's so much, so much rich um, uh, embrace of desire yeah, and eros in yeah. our own traditions that have been kind of wiped away by, by the British colonizers and Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean, and you talked about, you know, um, Section 377, right? Mm-hmm. You were referring mm-hmm. to the criminalization of ho- um, homosexuality in India. That, that literally British is like a direct, Yes, it's a British era law, right? That was repealed then brought back, then repealed again, and hopefully, you know, repealed for forever, right? Yeah. For, for good, for finality. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, that's the exact thing. British people were like, ah, sodomy? We don't like that. Let's let's criminalize that shit, you know, because that's that's not okay. Okay, um, and then you know, it's like whatever people are doing behind closed doors or whatever, mm-hmm. like is none of anybody's business, right? And it's not ours to say Between whether consenting it's right adults, or wrong. Like, good yeah. To go. yeah, like what's, what's exactly? The yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you bring religion up though, because mm-hmm. it especially in respect to Hinduism, which I. I guess know that most uh, um, as opposed to other religions, like uh, patrolling pleasure is like a standard practice. Uh, maybe not like in written doctrine, but like in practice for sure. Um, and whether that is in regards to, you know, um, like carnal pleasure or even like, like food, um, like even that is is controlled for quote unquote the person's greater good, mm-hmm. right? Like when when people are widowed, right? Mm-hmm. There there are food restrictions placed on them, and it's interesting also to see like who these restrictions are placed right. on for women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, food, clothing, much people right? who aren't men. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know. exactly. Yeah, and obviously it's like a patriarchal society um mm-hmm. kind of just like qualities of a patriarchal society but i guess my question is like obviously the british played a huge role in this but like weren't wasn't the majority of south asia a patriarchal society before the british and wouldn't that have had some effect on this as well just culturally yeah yeah i'm not trying to I- say like the british are not <laughs> <laughs> 
also responsible. Uh, of course, I think it's I think it would be reductive, right, to kind of blame the British for everything. Um, uh, and patriarchy exists across cultures and has is deeply root, you know, rooted mm-hmm. deeply rooted in South Asian cultures. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I think what's interesting when we think about religion, though, is the ways that our our gods themselves. I mean, it, it can all be interpreted, right? Religion and the text can be interpreted in so many different ways, but there are many interpretations of um uh you know the uh feminism in the, in the mm-hmm. hindu texts and yeah. the also um homoeroticism and our mm-hmm. god's gender bending and switching genders totally. and, and in, in enjoying erotic pleasure with each other and i've also seen then people interpret some of these texts um to show the inherent sexism or the you know so it can mm-hmm. it, the interpretation i think that's the interesting thing this yeah. has been a lot of work or with queer people of color that are mm-hmm. also very religious is how do you hold your queer part of yourself and your religious part of yourself without having to cancel Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of that work can be around finding communities that are taking those texts and interpreting them in these empowering ways and these liberating ways. And there's a lot going on as well as looking at the mystical traditions of the faiths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn more about how all of this research is then translated into visual art yeah um and like the the work and just like the thought that went into that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, well, I, you know, as a researcher, like, I guess you guys can, you know, it's, it can be so scholarly, right? But yeah. a lot of my work is like, how do I bring these insights to the public or to my, my family, right? To yeah. my aunties, yeah, my absolutely. uncles, absolutely. my cousins, the people I care about, so we can start to have these conversations. And I think art is such a good way to do that. And I actually hosted this virtual event, I had invited you guys, but I think you were busy. But it was so cool. It was like 60 people and half of nice. them were, were aunties and uncles and cousins, right? Oh my goodness. It, was, oh. it was very intergenerational and I just shared these um paintings I'll just share my screen here uh and, and we, we have, will we will throw these up in our uh for folks who are listening right now we're gonna throw up the website and have some of the prints available for folks as well but yeah sorry didn't mean to cut you off yeah, no, I appreciate you supporting supporting the arts. <laughs> and I should also say that um, all of the art is for sale as fine art prints and um, 100% of the profits are going to be donated to different organizations doing this work, including you guys. Including so, us. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the support. <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Um, but to, you know, to talk about this art, I think I, I, it's an amazing tool to start the dialogue and especially intergenerationally, we can talk amongst our own generation, but I think there's like this power in bringing, using images to bring people together. And so it was really totally. exciting to, um, uh, you know, engage in conversations with my, my mother, my aunties, people from their generation about their own relationship to images like mm, these. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you feel like people, was it kind of this thing of like it was an in and it was easier? Or was there still some shame and embarrassment or awkwardness that that you felt like came up from these conversations? I think there was actually gratitude. There could be, hmm. you know, probably hmm. um, my generation was doing more of the talking at first. Mm-hmm. But when um, the older generations are talking, it was, you know, for, especially for this one, like uh, this one is about 
Um, this is a Me Too painting. It's called okay. She. Uh, it's all about reclaiming our voice to break the culture of silence around mm. the traumas that we go through. And I think that's something that I realized in doing this work is mm. that it's not, it, we are just inheriting the work that our ancestors did. Absolutely. We, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of our moms, our aunties, and the, their, my, our grandmothers mm-hmm. who have all been trying to fight to get us to this point. And we don't know the things that they've all been through, right? Mm -hmm. And so these images really can be meaningful, even if people um, in other generations don't have the norms to kind of talk about them. Um, And and that's what I noticed is that there was gratitude in having people, you know, having people be doing this work. Yeah. And, and like having the, the language and the space to talk about some of these things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love how that's like literally visually represented with mm-hmm. like the branches coming out of her mouth. Yeah. yeah. And um, and the kind of like dolls, the little like Russian doll style and as she's holding in her belly of like all the generations of who came before or who's to come after yeah. and kind of makes me think of the whole – that whole thing of like where you're like – Oh, yeah, like I was in my grandma because like uh, my egg was in the in my mom and the, you know, as she was developing. Have you all heard this before? I don't know if I'm making that make sense. But just like thinking about it in that in that sense of the connection, both physically as well as, of course, just like spiritually and mentally Mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily in the ways that we've been taught to think like have forebrain all the time. Mm hmm. There were definitely more awkward moments. <laughs> like here we have, <laughs> here we have a you know Kama Sutra tantric Ooh. image with a queer lesbian orgy. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, and um, and some there was uh, the woman who inspired this, um, Marianne Mohanraj. She write she used to write erotica. She's a Sri Lankan American woman. Nice. Um, and so she shared some of her erotica <laughs> in, yeah, in the yeah. event. And, you know, my aunties and uncles about like some of them were really, it was very uncomfortable, but I also yeah. like was like, she's a badass for doing that. But, yeah. you know, so and did they stay on the call after? I will say some left. <laughs> oh, a little too much. Get in hot. Well, the ones that stuck Getting around. here. Yeah. around. Clearly <laughs> they liked it. <laughs> Look at yeah. her little, look at her nipples poking out. You're like, how could I not be intrigued by this? Look at her wearing that shari. She looks beautiful. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what's not to love? But yeah, I think this- sometimes there, there's like shame, right? It's like yeah. you're ashamed that you even like this something yeah. like this, right? Yeah. Because you're like, totally. wait, like I'm feeling turned on or I'm mm-hmm. feeling intrigued or a little warm, right? And like, yeah. Yeah. what is this feeling? Does this mean I'm a, you know, whatever, it's whatever, whatever. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was exactly what is that tingle I'm feeling? I, know. Like- <laughs> I gotta say, I for one love when we bring guests on that turn me on. Sorry, Nisha, but like, there's always that moment where you're like, I love when we're talking. We, I feel like we had this last season with Tara as well when Tara Abrol was joined us and does a lot of similar work and like really focused clinically. But just it's awesome, I think, to be able to tap into those things and be mm-hmm. like, how can we discuss them and and make it feel more common that like this is just kind of in the course of a day and the, you know, this is just like all the different emotions and bodily functions and physiological experiences that we have just like a yawn or just like, I'm thirsty right now, or, you know, whatever might be happening. Um, just acknowledging that. 
Yeah. And also flipping the script, right? Like, okay, if, if there's an experience of getting aroused or turned on the immediate cultural message is shame, that's bad. Totally but down, my, yeah. my research suggests that the gods would be very happy with that being, mm. um, you know, a, a direction to enlightenment. Like this image mm. here um, evokes the uh, female incarnate Buddha Tara who was all about, you know, this was when um, pre-colonial South Asia and Sri Lanka also, where um, uh, Tara was this like sensual um, figure that Buddhists would meditate on her image of being topless and exuding with this eroticism and um, tantric sex, you know, that can be, it can be um, completely yes. reappropriated tantric sex, but there's also oh, such value and, and wisdom and understanding that there wasn't this separation between mm -hmm. like spiritual wisdom and bodily pleasure yeah. that a lot of those were intertwined in our ancestry and heritage. Would you say it's almost like our dharmic duty <laughs> to, be, to engage in erotic pleasure? Uh, yeah, I, I oh would God. say you heard it here. <laughs> Do you Nisha was, folks? Nisha was not ready for that one. She's like, "Fuck, man." Um, I have a book chapter coming out called. Ooh, uh, yeah, it's, it's called "Finding God in the Bedroom: The Sacred Ooh. Good Goodness, oh goodness. of Sexual Pleasure." Oh, we love that. <laughs> turning me on as we have this conversation. Excellent. I love it. Yeah. And part of it is saying that there's actually, a, there is a sacred goodness that comes from pursuing our delight um, as well, you know, our, our delight that's also consensual, obviously. Right. Um, and, and uh, that there, our moral compass can actually hinge upon that, which brings us joy and delight and meaning and love, you know? And so I think that there has to be a lot of undoing of this idea that we're doing something bad when we're engaging in mutual, consensual, pleasure, joy, erotic totally. delight. And that's what this image here with Kali and Shiva mm -hmm. is all about. It's it's the gods delighting in erotic joy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point of Tantra because I've definitely experienced this with people of, you know, and I think like to some extent we've all had that thing of like, oh, you're Indian? Like, tell me about the Kama Sutra. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only thing I know about it and whatever. And you're like, it's actually kind of a lifestyle book in general, <laughs> like, and doesn't necessarily have to do strictly with sexuality and how to, you know, it's just like sex and sexuality is a part of life in the same yeah. way that all of these other things are. So let's talk about it. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, the whole Kama Sutra piece and I've, and, and, or in the Tantra piece and thinking about like, I've honestly met I shit you not a bunch of white people who have been like, oh man, I'm a tantric like practitioner and I do tantric yoga and blah, 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 like tantric twerking. <laughs> Is that what you've seen? Tantric twerking instructor. I have yeah. never heard of that. Wow. That's a level. That's a, That's a different level. conversation, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that now you're just mishmashing a bunch of cultures that like, yeah, nothing just, and, like Oh my good golly gosh. But yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like I, it's one of those, it's, I, it's kind of one of those things that I think, and going back to like yoga in general, and sometimes God. feeling this amount of guilt of being like, Ooh, like this is kind of my own mm -hmm. culture and history. And I don't know as much about it as these people who are, don't share my cultural background are like seeming to know. So in some way you're like, what do I know? I've never studied Tantra. I've never 
directly read the Kama Sutra. I've never, you know, like I've never seriously practiced yoga. So I don't have anything to say to you, but at the same time, having this kind of feeling of like, I don't know, you're, you're taking this thing from me. You're like, you're selling it first of all, which is weird. You're, you're really like finding yourself through this journey of, I don't know. I have a weird feeling. Yeah, and you're mispronouncing right everything now. in the meantime. Yeah, yes, that too. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, you know, I can totally, yeah, I, I agree, especially with yoga. Like I refused to do yoga for so long because I went to one class taught by a white person and it was just, it disgusted me, frankly. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, but it was using yoga for capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> really weird. Yes. Um, that is not liberation psychology. I'll tell you what. <laughs> but, but through this project, I realized reclaiming erotic power, right. Is also, re- it is reclaiming our wisdom and taking it back and, and educating ourselves a little bit. And I think that they're, you know, in going back and reading the Kama Sutra and really realizing Realizing that there are parts of the Kama Sutra, you know, that when they focus on um, sex that are helping, you know, helping people give pleasure to same sex lovers or um, privileging the woman's pleasure or Mm -hmm. um, showing ways to engage in BDSM sex. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually interesting. And it, I think it is part of the process of decolonizing Mm -hmm. is, uh, and then with yoga, uh, I was so resistant for so long. And then I started actually doing yoga during this pandemic with my aunties. Nice. Um, and we do Zoom yoga every week. And I was learning yoga the way yoga is supposed to be taught. Mm-hmm. And it was a completely different experience. Um, so I want to is- join. Can, is there a $5 <laughs> drop in? Like, can I, can I slide a little bit of some cha-cha love? Like, just slide it in somewhere. I'll totally know. send you the Zoom link. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels like if you're doing yoga and anything besides like a salwar, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I've been wondering that, like what if the non, you know, fabletics, Lululemon, like what is the, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what traditional wear for practicing yoga looks like. I really don't. You know, I've um, uh, one of my uncles actually told me that a lot of yoga is supposed to be done naked. Yeah, which again in this day and age, everyone would be like, "Oh my God, what do you mean?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, like he like told me, told me like point blank, like there are certain positions and stuff that you are, you know, it's because it's supposed to be like an individual practice and everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So this whole idea that we go to yoga classes like there's thirty people just, just completely with your blocks incorrect. and your straps. Yeah, like yeah. what the fuck is all that shit? Yeah. And honestly, don't get me wrong. Like you know, I practice yoga both for the spiritual, but also like to keep myself flexible and pliable and get through my injuries. Right. So I see both sides of it, but like when I go to a yoga class and I have this white woman telling me what these certain words mean and pronouncing everything with an American accent, I'm just like, stay calm, stay calm. Yeah. You're here to de-stress help. and not get stressed out. The, the divine light in me honors the divine oh light. My God. Namaste. And I'm like, that, what? You're just saying high and by like what <laughs> I've never it heard have, that it's not that deep <laughs> but I yeah I appreciate that in terms of these conversations of like reclaiming vulnerability and and I mean really kind of ultimately this question of like how do we reclaim our erotic power what have you found what are kind of these outcomes or like what is it that we need to know in terms of um, you know, applying that into our lives from the research, from the art, from all of what you've brought together, how can people bring that home? Yeah, I guess 
as a researcher, right, I'm not doing clinical work right now, but I do think research is a, it, it can be applied in useful ways. Mm-hmm. And so totally. a lot of my research is, is, is about reclaiming our wisdom, reclaiming mm. our heritage, actually educating ourselves about um, our ancestry and, and the ways that there has been erotic power exuding from our cultures. And I would say that across all of the fates as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of the major things that I've noticed is just talking about it and finding mm-hmm. community is is a form, you know, it's about reclaiming voice, but also reclaiming, um, here's one about reclaiming love. Yeah. And uh, when I think about, I think the queer community being really being on the forefront of this, mm-hmm. where there has been this um, you know, this need to break the silence and talk about sex mm-hmm. for survival that that everybody across identities um, can learn from building these loving communities and home places where mm-hmm. people, you know, I think about beyond the therapist's office, which is this place of privacy where you can approach these shameful things about what's happening during sex or this or that and um, breaking the taboo around that and actually creating communities and friendships where this becomes the norm mm-hmm. um, to talk about one's sexuality. And I, I again, want to just honor the queer community and the South Asian queer community for mm-hmm. being at the forefront of this. Yeah, totally. I think it really comes back to like those core roots of what queer itself means and 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 that being a liberatory practice in and of itself of like reclaiming the term queer and just essentially like queering, deviating from the norm and and in some ways just fucking it up, right? <laughs> in whatever ways we need to of like, let's make this our own. And yeah, I actually, this this particular image too is up on our blog as well with the whole um, amazing essay that our intern from the summer put together on decolonizing sexuality and kind of more in terms of a little bit of the history of where, um, where that comes from in terms of all these things that we're talking about. Yeah, I also, I, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on, communication, right? And finding people to talk about this with. But I also have found that it's really useful to engage and get comfortable engaging in these types of conversations with sexual partners and and lovers as well. Um, Talking, you know, like, I think that there can be such a breakdown of sexual communication. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work as a therapist, and then also personally has been just creating um, spaces where, where that intimate partnership itself can hold a lot of, of those truths that people Absolutely. carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Ugh, Nisha, you've been so lovely. <laughs> We're so excited to have you join us today. I feel like this conversation can and should continue and needs to continue. And, you know, you know that we'll be doing it for sure, but it's exciting to see. It's always just like whenever you find this synergy and synchronicity across multiple people, like diasporic mm-hmm. folks, like doing this work in all of their own different ways. It's, it's so exciting to have that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't. I, I mean, share with in folks. this multidisciplinary way, like totally taking research yeah. and like sciencey stuff and making it into a more digestible, like easily accessible, more intellectually stimulating um, form too. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And kind of speaking Absolutely. the languages that people want to speak, right? Like mm-hmm. and yeah. connecting through dance, through books, through visual art, through conversation, through food, like right, all the different ways that it's that works. on all fronts. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Nisha, tell us um, how folks can find you or any kind of shout outs you want, anything you've got coming up that you'd want folks to know about. Yeah, you can look more at the project at uh, www.desieros.com. Um, I also want to say that I've been playing around with running 
art workshops oh, where dope. I actually, so I, I, I just did one and I'm in talks to keep this going. Um, and so if anybody wants to do this and, um, uh, I've been helping people hone their own power through art and nice. take moments in okay. their lives that they were really felt a lot of personal power and then go through the process of making their own symbolic art coming out of that moment of power in their lives. And so that. um, that's kind of a way to also keep the conversation going with me if, if anybody would be interested in that. But otherwise, just check out the website. Um, which I think you guys will link to because yes, I think yeah. that has a yeah. lot of that wisdom that came from my research that can help decolonize our own sexuality. That's dope. I love it. Awesome. And, and really kind of coming back to that piece of like, how can we continue continue that conversation and, and uh, engage in all those different ways? Thank you. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can definitely find us at South Asian SMH on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Of course, on our website, www.sasma.org, where you can contact us again, ask us your questions, any topic ideas, hire us for workshops, pay us your money. Um, and if you'd like to hear, um, and if you want to slide us some more of your dollars, you can also donate to us at paypal.me slash Sasma, we love it we appreciate it and thank you all so much for joining us thank you nisha it was awesome to have you today thank bye. You. Thank bye. You. bye 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 <laughs> bye